Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Welcome and thank you for joining me today on The Moment. I have a really special um uh, guests with me today and kind of setting up a couple of days ago, uh, my daughter was watching the show glow and the opening credits came on and the song was warrior by Patty Smythe, of course. And then shortly after that, I was watch I was watching the show love on Netflix, the Judd Apatow show. And there was a character in there who referenced the song love is a battlefield. And then later into the night, I was watching an old episode of the office, the original office, the British office, the really funny office. And Richie Gervais is doing a, um, a really funny, um, uh, sketch where he's he's sort of doing a corporate speaking job and he closes with Tina Turner's The Best. And I was thinking, you know, that scope of songs there, what connects them is not just that it's all great television, but that those songs all flowed from one woman. And she is Holly Knight, a legendary American songwriter, musician, singer. Uh, we're going to talk about her, her own musical career, but she wrote or co-wrote many hit singles, including Ragdoll, Aerosmith, of course, Obsession, Love is a Battlefield, The Best, Invincible, Better Be Good to Me. I could spend the next hour just rattling off songs she's written that you know but I think it would be far more interesting to have her join the conversation so Holly are you there I'm here thanks for joining me today well thank you for having me Chris this is, I was, I'm really happy to be here well, you know, I was thinking when, when I had that little sequence the other day of hearing a lot of your work, th- this idea of the, the ubiquitousness of you, do you get used to that? Does, does, it, does it ever become just sort of part of the background, just how much a part of the fabric, cultural fabric that your work is, or does it still kind of excite you and spark you when you hear things yourself? I would say that it absolutely um, excites me. I mean, the day that it stops doing that, um, will be the, the day that I'm just like too jaded to, you know, I'm just too, too cool for words and I don't ever want to be that person. But I will say that a lot of times, like I might be sitting in my bedroom and a show comes on and uh, one of my songs come on and nobody's around. There's no one for me to brag and say, oh, it's my song. And I just sort of keep doing what I'm doing. I smile and kind of have a little laugh. To myself, it's like my private moment. But I just continue doing whatever it is I'm doing. You know, if I'm making the bed or whatever. Um, so it's it's sort of a two-folded answer. It's like I'm 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 very excited, but I'm used to it. Mm-hmm. Were there some when you were when you were a young girl growing up in New York? When you think of the radio, but we're both from New York and New York City radio. I think we got spoiled as kids. There were some really great stations and great disc jockeys and people you locked onto. Do you remember as a kid certain songs that jumped out to you that that you still think of today that have that have weathered you know well for you that you that had an effect on you that you first gravitated toward or at least your ears gravitated toward when you were young? Um. Of course. I mean, there's so many. I have to now sit here and sort of say, well, which one was the most important? I mean, I was a big fan of Queen, not so much growing up, but when I was sort of a young adult, because that's about the time it came mm-hmm. out. Um, you know, it, it's, all songs mark different time periods. You know, I mean, the Stones kind of marked a certain part of my childhood. But then, you know, as I got older, it was, you know, Aerosmith or... Um, like I said, Queen or Bad Company or Todd Rundgren. He was mm-hmm. a little bit earlier. He was a big influence. 
I mean, I had, there was such a potpourri of like stuff that I was listening to that to me, it was like, as long as it was really good and it touched me, it didn't matter what the genre was, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I remember when I was living in um, Boston and Boston of all people that more than the, more than a feeling when that song came out, it just really reminded me of living in Boston and, you know, it was sort of guitar driven and, but it was kind of like, it wasn't like real guitar. It, you know, they had a, they had sort of a, there was a rumor that it was just sort of like a very sort of studio made record, but I didn't care because I really liked the sound, you know, Mm -hmm. they were great. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they definitely, I think people forget like in the mid seventies, when you had Boston come out, there was a period where things got very polished and then you had foreigner right right around then. And you had these very big sounding, you know, it got accused of being quote sort of corporate rock, but it was some really good music as well. It was really well crafted, really well built. And obviously built to last because a lot, I mean, Boston in particular, I think still sounds great today. I think that first album is, is just it, landmark. It, it, it was as soon as that guitar thing, the, the, the guitar riff came in, I remember hearing it on the radio going, wow, this is like really musical, you know, mm-hmm. um, I was, yeah, I was just referring to like, you know, real bands have, well, not anymore, but back then they had <laughs> Marshalls and, and, right. and amps and all that. And I think he was sort of a techie guy that, played the whole record out of a pig nose or something or something like that. Some sort of Tom Schultz. Yeah. yeah. Well, you were, you were a keyboard player trained as, as a young girl in New York and you start, you know, you gravitate um, into the city, uh, deeper into the city in the late seventies. And then you're, you're a musician yourself before you're really writing in earnest or obviously before you develop your reputation as a hall of fame songwriter, you are, um, you're in a band. I mean, you talk a little bit, cause I think the origin of your first band spider is kind of a fun story and it really sets you up for what happens next in your life in terms of big moments. Sure. Um, well, first of all, when I was four, I started taking piano lessons and studying classical music. And I already knew at that point that, uh, you know, music was going to be my first language. I was just obsessed with it. And I would get up, super early in the morning to practice before school. And then I'd come home and I'd play till my parents begged me to stop. Um, so music was always a part of me. I was always a musician. Only at that point, my mother was sort of grooming me to be a classical pianist. But once I discovered rock, it was like game over. It was going to be, I was, all I cared about was being in a band. Uh, you know, I hadn't thought about being a songwriter at all. And that didn't come till later. Um, so when I met the guys in Spider, they there were three South Africans, um, and it was Anton Fig, legendary mm-hmm. drummer now, and Keith Lenton and his wife Amanda, and uh, they were all South African. And I just they they asked me to come down to their lot. They hadn't even started auditioning yet, and they just wanted to play me some stuff. And then I just heard something that said, "Can we play? T- can we play right now?" And so we jammed all night and. I think I crashed out on the floor or couch or something. And then when I woke up, they said, you're in the band. And that's how easy it was. Although leading up to that point, I just kept trying to put together a band or join a band and it didn't happen. And I think when I was 18, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Um, when I was 18, I was going to audition for Hall & Oates. I, I, I saw the sad that they were looking for a keyboard player. <laughs> And I was, and I, when I met him, we talked about this years later, many years later, I was, in, I was 30 and he remembered, oh, some chick was going to, he was really interested because there really weren't a lot of uh, female musicians out there. And I really wanted to do it. But then I thought, you know, I'm 
I'm not ready to go on the road. I think I, I need to sort of focus on, you know, how am I going to define what I do? Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I didn't do it. But that point, Holly, about there not being a lot of females, female musicians, at least out there competing in what was then a very heavily male-dominated field, what was that like early on? Did you sense early on that your hurdles were going to be a little bit higher, a little bit harder, or did you just have your focus so set that that didn't affect you? I think I had my focus so set that it really, you know, it's like, I've, you know, I'm writing my memoirs and I, and I wrote, wrote about this that, uh, you know, I basically just walked into, I didn't even really think of it as the man cave, but it was definitely a man cave. I walked into the man cave and just acted like I had every right to be there. You know, it didn't occur to me because uh, I figured if they were kind of looking at me like, you know, yeah, who is she and can, she probably can't play. It's like, all I'd have to do is sit down. I'd go into a little corner when you know, I sort of pretended that I thought they weren't listening, but I knew they were <laughs> listening. And I would play something like a Beethoven sonatas, you know, something classical, and that would just shut them right up. And and then I could see the attitude change. Like the minute I started playing, they could see I had a good ear. And um, if anything, there have been times where they've been kind of intimidated, you know. But that came later. That came much later when I started producing and. You know, um, I could pick out anything and just say, you know, let's go back because you missed that note on the fourth bar. And Mm -hmm. I really want this note, you know. Um, And it's a part of my songwriting. I mean, many times if I have a song and someone cuts it, I really want to make sure they get the bass notes right. Because part of my sound, and that sounds weird to say sound because it sounds deliberate, but it's not. Um, But over the years, I've come to recognize it. But my bass lines are really important and usually they go in places that are normally not the root of the chord which makes it different you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So very particular about stuff like that at what point holly when you're inspired when, when does it become apparent to you that songwriting is something that um that you may have particular skill set for that's that's beyond what a normal musician may or may not have like, there's got to be a point where you start to realize that you have a certain knack or at least if there's something about it that feels intuitive for you do you is there a point like that or is it more gradual i will no there is definitely a point it's it's actually a defining moment, I would say. Uh, when I was in Spider, everybody was writing. You know, we our goal was to get a record deal and tour and have hits and, you know, the whole ball of wax. And everybody was writing. And I just sort of started writing at that point on a more serious level because I wanted to be a contributor. And what happened was our manager, Bill Coyne, who was also Kiss's manager, mm-hmm. he had done a thing with them where he told everybody to split the writing equally and then there would be no competition, <laughs> you no know, ego. It's like, yeah, right. Okay, so <laughs> and it really didn't solve the problem. Um, and the reason I'm telling you this is because when we handed in our group of songs for the first record, they picked like almost all of my songs, you know, and they didn't know who wrote what. So they were really coming from an honest place. And that's when I started to notice that Mike Chapman, who was one of the record owners, who was some, an amazing writer himself and an amazing producer. He had done uh, so much stuff, including all the Blondie records mm-hmm. as a producer, not as a writer. But as a writer, he'd also written many hits like Ballroom Blitz. Yeah. Uh, and he really sort of started, you know, paying more attention to me when it came to the songs and uh, then on the second record, I just, 
I really wanted to work with him. I wanted to bring him into the band. That was my goal in the beginning when I was sort of courting him. I wanted him to produce us, but he ended up signing us. So when the second record was being done, I felt like we hadn't really gotten the kind of single that we should have. So I went to him and asked him if he, if he would write a song with me. And after that, um, long story short, after I left the band, I went to him and said, I want to leave the band. And I felt kind of guilty because... And one of the reasons I wanted to leave the band was because they gave me quite a lot of shit about having so many songs on the record. And that was kind of stifling because I thought, well, they should be encouraging me. We shouldn't be encouraging each other. And, you know, who cares who wrote what? Because it's so hard to get on the radio that whatever it takes, let's do it. Mm -hmm. um, so they were kind of working against that. And so when I wanted to leave the band after the second record. And so I went and wrote with him and, and I said, uh, you know, a few months later, I, you know, I want to leave the band. He said, well, that's the best thing you can do. And he became my mentor uh, at the time. I moved out to California and, um, and he really gave me a lot of support. I mean, Mike was this ultra cool guy and he was saying to me, Holly Knight, you're a badass and you really need to pursue your songwriting because there's plenty of, you're a great musician, but it's much cooler to be a great songwriter. That's like the royalty in the business. And mm -hmm. it always starts with the single. I mean, that's what the A&R people were looking at, you know, to mm -hmm. them having like a great single was like the Holy grail, you know? So that's what had happened. And from there, I mean, winded I'll, answer, but well, no, 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 but it sets up something because you, you, you have um, a very complicated relationship from that point on with Mike Chapman, where tons of success and really big success. And, you know, to talk a little bit about what, what grows out of that in the first song, because you're about to now experience um, sort of a life changing thing for you, right. In terms of, of, of a song being embraced and kind of coming out of your sessions with Mike, describe what that's like and what it produces the time with him. Well, um, the first song that we wrote actually was Better Be Good To Me. And that was our first single. And it was the coolest thing that Spider ever did. If you ever mm -hmm. want to hear our version, all you have to do is go on YouTube. Uh, because it's slower and a little bit more druggy than the one that Tina did, not to take away from what she did. I mean, that was so incredibly exciting. So by the time I had moved out to L.A., that was already happening. And John Waite had just cut Change, which was another song I wrote on the Spider record. Um, mm -hmm. So I was starting to get that feel like I like people doing my songs. I mean, it's like a completely different trajectory, like road than I ever imagined. You know, I imagined myself on stage and, you know, because I love to perform live. I'm very much a musician still. It, you know, it took a long time to switch from being the musician songwriter to the lyricist, uh, like a real songwriter, you know. Um, and you do, we'll, we'll get to it, but you do come back in the mid eighties with another band. I mean, obviously the performing bug is still, you know, burning in you, but one thing you had described to me offline that, that people have a misconception sometimes that when you write a song that becomes very big for somebody that you've got uh, an intimate personal relationship with them. When in some cases you don't even meet the singer, right? I mean, in Tina's oh, case, when she does that, you, you had never met her before she did your song, right? No, and after she had a hit and got a, a Grammy for the song, I still hadn't met her. And <laughs> chances are I probably wouldn't have met her, except that the circumstances were such that 
I met her in a really amazing way. But to go back to your point about Mike, um, see, so we started out uh, because he endorsed me and he was cool. Then all of a sudden there, the word kind of got around. Oh, Mike's got this new songwriting partner and they're writing all these hits and it made me look cool. You know, his coolness kind of made me look cool. I had someone endorsing me in that way. And that's such a rare thing and a, and, and a great thing to have in the beginning of one's career. It's, a, it's, you know, I think it was just meant to be, but I don't think that happens all the time. So I, what I wanted to say was between being in the band and also meeting Mike, it all happened very quickly for me. You know, this wasn't years and years of like struggling and all that. It was just, everything just clicked into place, you know? Um, and at the time that was like, it was just amazing. You know, everything, I, we were just this bundle of creativity, but then I started writing with other writers. He was also my publisher. So he introduced me to Nick Gilder and I wrote The Warrior. Mm -hmm. And then I started meeting a lot of people on my own and it had nothing to do with him. And that's when the relationship kind of started to change, you know? I think it's pretty typical when you have like a mentor protege kind of relationship. Well, there's ownership, the right? Don't they feel like they kind of brought you in and... They never grow up. You grow up. They're <laughs> still left with being like, you know... Um, you know, in charge, and they don't like that. They don't want to see you doing stuff on your own. And I, you know, to be honest, I really had a struggle with that. And Did you ever write about that? Did that dynamic ever find its way into a song? Um, let me think about it. That. Seems like, it seems well, really ripe for something. Yeah, well, maybe that's yet to be written. Okay. <laughs> I mean, probably did. I've written songs about pretty much everything, but I, nothing really sort of comes to mind except my new one, which was actually my divorce song, which was, it was an anagram, AMF yo-yo, which stood for adios, motherfucker, you're on. <laughs> so that could have been about Mike. <laughs> I am talking with Holly and I right now. We're going to take a quick break. My name is Chris Septing. This is the moment. We'll come back and hear a lot more stories from Holly, who is uh, in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, has won 13 ASCAP awards. Again, she is one of uh, our, our finest and most legendary songwriters. It's a thrill to have her here today, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Yeah. 
You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Back talking with Holly Knight, legendary songwriter. Holly, you were talking about your relationship with Mike Chapman and how it led to some really great things and also some tension as you began to sort of grow and develop new songwriting partnerships. But you still have, there's another great moment, obviously, with Tina Turner um, after It Better Be Good To Me. Talk a little bit. You have a great story about how you finally do meet her and what that leads to. I mean, arguably, I think one of your most anthemic um, songs. But describe that if you would. I think it's a great story. Um, well, what happened was she'd already had a hit uh, with uh, Better Be Good To Me. And um, I was so excited about that, but I never took for granted that I'd ever get a chance to have anything else cut by her. And um, I was quite friendly with her manager, Roger Davies. In fact, <clears throat> he actually managed me for a nanosecond with my band device. And um, it was quite funny because he was Australian and Mike Chapman was Australian and Mike was producing device and they kind of had this... They had this weird sort of competitive thing going. I don't know what was up with that, but I got along with him great. He's a very sweet man. And um, he called me up and asked me, he told me that Tina Turner had just filmed the follow-up to the Mad Max movie and um, wanted to know if I would write the theme song for her, which was really amazing. I mean, he could have called anybody. I was so thrilled he did. And so um, he hung up the phone. He said, time is of the essence because the movie's coming out during the summer and she's on tour right now. So, you know, if you, if you could just sort of get to it now, that would be great. So I wrote this song and I demoed it and it was called one of the living. Um, I saw some footage. He sent over some footage, which really helped. And then he sent it to her and this all happened like in a span of about two weeks. And he called me up and said, well, she absolutely loves it and wants to cut it. So I was like, Oh, wow. This is just got a second tune with Tina Turner. This is great. At this point, she's like the biggest star on the planet. Right. You know? Um, so I said, well, you, you said she needs to cut it right away. So how are we going to do this? And, um, we talked about it and, and decided that I would cut the track ahead of time. I suggested that my chap and produce it. Um, and I said my band, which was device, which was really mostly me and Gene Black, the guitarist, mm-hmm. um, cause the drums were programmed on, on the record. I said, can we cut the track? And then when she comes back, all she has to do is walk in and sing it. He said, that's a great idea. That's perfect. That's what we'll do. I said, well, there's one problem um, that I'm a little concerned about, and that's getting the key right. And he said, well, yeah, you got a point. He said, we got to get that right. He said, why don't you just make a cassette with a verse and a chorus in five different keys? I'm flying tomorrow. I'm going to see her. I'm meeting up with the tour, and I'll just give it to her, and she'll pick a key, and, you know, Bob's your uncle. So I said, uh, Mm, that's not going to work. And he was like, well, why not? I said, well, you know, we have, and this is going to date me, but we have <laughs> Walkmans, you know, the little, <laughs> and I said, um, what if my batteries are different, you know, power than sure. her? The key is going to, it's going to slow the tape down, which is going to change the key. So that won't be accurate. He says, oh, well, we'll just, we'll plug it into the wall. And I said, well, yeah, but the, the currency between, you know, Europe and the United States is completely different. So it could still be running at this, the wrong key. And he gets really quiet and he's thinking, he goes, do you have a passport? And I said, yeah, why? He goes, well, pack your bags and your passport. And you're coming with me to London tomorrow. Hmm. So that's how I met her. You know, we, we, we flew, um, 
It was amazing. It was I was sitting on the plane, flying first class with Roger Davies. Get off the plane. She comes in a limo, which is also unheard of, to pick me up with her road manager. And you know, that's how I met her. And then the the, the great court. Do you want to hear any more? Or Absolutely. That- no, of course. So. Um, and then they put me up in their hotel, which was amazing because usually, you know, everybody else but the star stays in like a, you know, motel six or whatever, or five, whatever the number is. But Three. I stay in the same hotel. We went the next day to rehearsal and we figured out the key in like five minutes. And I'm so glad I went because the first key actually, which one would have thought, well, this is her key, wasn't as good as what we ended up with because we took it a little bit higher, which really pushed her to sing mm-hmm. it. You know, that's the big voice that she has. And then, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I've just, if I include the mileage of flying there and then flying back, where I've just taken a meeting for five minutes and I've flown 10,000 miles for this five minute meeting. Um, and I thought, you know, I have a few days before I have to go and cut this track. Like, you know, maybe I should go see Stonehenge. Maybe I should stay a few days and I'll <laughs> go see the dungeons, you know, and the. In the, in the bottom of the, the Tower of London. And she was in the room. She kind of like looked at me like she read my mind. She said, why don't, you, why don't you come on tour with us for a few days before you go home? Wow. And, and I did. And so I got to spend like several days with her. And, and that, was all, that, was a, that, that was a defining moment right there when I saw her live, you know? Well, I mean, you mentioned you're writing a memoir. These are obviously the kinds of stories that will take readers inside, you know, songs they, they thought they knew. And, you know, and to that end, around the same time, Holly, MTV is also, you know, becoming big. I always thought in terms of what you wrote, uh, some of the more anthemic stuff, the timing was really crazy with MTV because you seemed sort of tailor-made to write songs that were big and provocative that would translate well visually. And, and you did. Uh, did you ever find yourself, once you became sort of, you know, there was a point on MTV where you, you, there was so much of your work was on there visually. Did it ever come to a point from your songwriting where you were actually writing, thinking about visuals before, or did you always start with the song and just keep it at that? I always started with the visuals in my head. Oh. Even, even before a video like came into it, I would sort of play out a story in my head, huh. which would help me to write lyrics. So when MTV came along, it was like the perfect, I mean. It oh, was that's funny. So you had MTV stuff. going in your head already. Kind All of. My whole life, my whole life. I had a very vivid imagination. I think part of that is because <clears throat> when I was younger, um, I often found myself in some sort of dark situations growing up where I had to sort of make up this make-believe world, you know? And so, you know, I've always sort of thought that way. And, I, you know, I'm very visual anyway. I mean, I, I'm in, I, I do photography now mm-hmm. and I edit videos and I'm a huge uh, fan of movies and the story. The story mm-hmm. is everything, you know? Right. Um, so, yeah, when MTV came along, it was so exciting because there was this whole – it, it was just a perfect, perfect match for me, you know? Well, how would you feel and when you would see something like Love is a Battlefield at this point? I'm not, I think Bob Giraldi directed that, didn't he? That, I don't remember who did it. But, 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 but whoever, they, they, those were big productions at that point, And songs you wrote were becoming some of the bigger production pieces on MTV. How I, mean, would I you remember f- the video. It's not that I don't remember the video. I just don't remember 
<laughs> right. But You're when right you would now. see a video like that, how would you normally feel? I mean, were you usually typically pleased with the visual translations of your songs or would you have a different version in your mind of how it may have looked? Do you remember right. what those things made you feel like? Well, I think almost without fail, maybe the ex there would be an exception to the rule, but without fail, I would hate the video. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when I saw the video to love is a battlefield, I'm not sure what it had to do with the, the lyrical content. I mean, hmm. you know, here she was uh, in a bar <laughs> basically playing a hooker right. know, the guy with the gold tooth. That was like her pimp was the choreographer. I think they doubled up on that. Right. And although, you know, like when I first heard the song, I, Mike and I didn't really care for it because the demo was quite different. You know, Paul, um, Neil always goes around saying, oh, it was a ballad. No, it was not a ballad. It was a mid-tempo eighth note kind of a, you know, epic, epic demo, you know? Mm -hmm. And I even said to him once, because she whistles at the end as she's walking off. And I right. said, well, that's the only thing you kept from the demo, Neil. And he goes, well, no, we made that up. That was our idea. I said, no, it wasn't. And he goes, yeah, it was. I said, well, you listen to the demo. It's not, it, Mike Chapman was whistling at the beginning, you know. <laughs> but, so it, but that being said, I really have to say that it, I got used to it. And I got used to the video to the point where I love it now, you know, because it's so 80s and it's so cheesy and iconic. I mean, you know, there's like, for instance, there's a movie called 13 Going on 30 with Jennifer mm -hmm. Garner. And there's a whole scene where she turns to all these little girls and says, love's a battlefield. And then it comes, it comes on the TV and they're all dancing and singing to it. And I realized that people loved that video. You know, they don't have the reference point of how it was originally tended to written, but they love the video and they love the song. And that's really all that matters, you know. And I still have a chance to basically go out and perform it, my version. And I do with just a piano and people. What is that like for you when you interpret things the way you originally heard it? Because obviously, whenever somebody takes one of your songs, whether you work with Daryl Hall and John Oates, whether it's Lou Graham, this whole myriad of people, when you do your own versions of it, is that a chance for you to really present it in a way that, that you feel was sort of the essence of the song? Absolutely. And I have to say to Tina's Turner, Tina Turner's credit, out of all the artists that I worked with, she really was interested in getting the song down exactly the way the demo was, without fail every time. And I thought that was an incredible, I thought that was incredibly smart on her part because we know what we're doing. And when we write the song and we make the demo, and I would usually try to make pretty bare bones, simple demos, because the more you put on there, the more confusing it gets. And it doesn't give them much room to do something. And, uh, you know, it kind of backfired with the, when we did that with Neil and Pat at mm -hmm. the time. But, but Tino always, you know, was really, really good at respecting the original ethos of the tune. And, and, and I love her for that, you know. But also going back to videos, I have to say that one of the videos I really hated was <laughs> The Warrior with Patti Smythe. And, I mean, and I got to tell you, I sat down because Patty inducted me into the Songwriting Hall of Fame and we're, we're good friends. And, you know, we're both New Yorkers. We're, we're, we're the, come from the same cloth, you know. Mm -hmm. And so we met up before the, 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 the event for the Songwriting, Songwriting Hall of Fame induction. And I don't remember who brought it up. I think it was her. No, she brought it up because I wouldn't dare say, like, I hated the video to her. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, didn't you fucking hate that video? I mean, how stupid was that video? Oh, how funny. I, I don't understand why they dressed me up in this kabuki makeup and they made my hair stick up. And, you know, the guitarist doing this stupid thing with these like abacus like things that he was moving across a, a wire. And, you know, it was just really dumb. And I just pictured it much more like her being cooler in jeans and a T-shirt and, you know, something empowering. But that was but that was the 80s. Look, you had cows walking through the set, you know. I mean, Obsession turned out to be like a pool party with guys dressed as Trojan warriors serving hors d'oeuvres. I mean, I'm not sure what that has to do with Obsession, but... But that's what I loved about the 80s. It's just the, the the silliness of it. You know, it was sort of an innocent time with great music and silliness. You know, it was, well, it was and it was a relatively era. new medium. I mean, it yeah. was a relatively new medium totally too, in terms new. of video. Yeah, it was you, know. totally, you couldn't see videos before that. I mean, what they had the midnight special and the occasional videos um, here and there. Now they appear on YouTube, but there's really no sort of platform for them to be played you know and it wasn't like a thing like once mtv happened it was a given that if you had a single you had to negotiate into your record deal that you wanted x amount of money for the budget and then you could fight over whether it was recoupable or not you know um, all those things it was like a given that with the single came the video and mm -hmm. people don't realize that now just like you know kids grow up now and they assume that the internet has always been a part of life or a cell phone you know? Right, right. Well, you, uh, you know, it's interesting. There, there was sort of a new vanguard of writers at that point. You didn't come out of the Brill building or sort of the more traditional, conventional way that songwriters had come out. You were, you, you struck out on your own and there were some other songwriters too. And you were part of this new wave um, where, where bands at that point, they were sort of opening up and, and becoming more open to bringing in someone like you, right? I think the timing of your life also fits that period where bands that maybe had had bigger hits years before now had to find something else and you were the, the go-to for a lot of artists, right? Absolutely. Well, you know, like I said, to the A&R people, which by for anyone that doesn't know what that means, it's artists and repertoire. And those are the people that would sign a band and develop them over time which doesn't happen anymore. It's like now you get signed, you make a record. And if, if it doesn't test right, it doesn't even get released, you know? Mm -hmm. But so going back to the, 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 the idea of the, the single, like bands didn't want to do outside songs because it made them look like, um, you know, like basically like pussies, you know? Right. Like I'm a, if I can't write my own material, then I'm not worth anything, which is kind of ridiculous because some of the greatest artists of all time, are not songwriters and nobody really cares. I mean, Elvis, Elvis didn't write his songs, you know, Sinatra, Linda Ronstadt, Sinatra, they were Linda Ronstadt um, Tina Turner, right. Tony Bennett. In fact, people like Sinatra and Tony Bennett were amazing because they would introduce the song saying, this is a great song by Hal David. And right. You know, they gave them it's like Cole Porter, right? They always acknowledged. I, I totally agree. I think that was always a great part of the show. And you learned a lot about the music listening to how they introduced it. Absolutely. And whereas in this, this, you know, this world of rock and roll and bands doing stuff, very often they don't want people to know that they didn't write the songs. And in fact, now it's worse because back then at least you could get, you had to legally have your name on a record or a record jacket as the writer, you know, along with the engineer and the musicians and all the other people, the village that kind of went into making a record, 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, now you, you, you don't see that kind of stuff. There's no such thing as liner notes anymore. You know, I know. it's actually kind of funny because there's a Grammy for it. There's a Grammy for liner notes. And I'm thinking, well, where do they see the liner notes? Because everything's streaming now. So that it's a little outdated, you know, it's a shame. It's probably going to go away as a result of that. Holly, I, I think one of your themes is obviously your ability to hold your own, not just, um, well, especially amongst some real legends. When you think about writing with people like Rod Stewart, um, with Aerosmith, and, and, and especially, I think to me, your initial kind of brush with the band Kiss, I think, is it seems like it was very defining in terms of your life and kind of where it went, because that could have gone a lot of ways. And you were kind of pushed to prove yourself in a moment, right? Can you describe, I, I love that story about you going in the studio or being in the studio. You're managed by Bill O'Coin at that point is also managing Kiss, and it results in this meeting at a studio in New York, right? Yeah, well, I was at the record plant, which... I, you know, part of my success was finding the right places to hang out with and just sort of happen to be in the right place at the right time. I made, I made that a mission. I really, really did. You know, whether it was crashing backstages at the garden (laughs) or going to the right club where there were, you know, celebrities that would go there and have their after parties. Um, Well, the record plant, I had every right to be there too, because I was actually, I had done demos there with Spider Mm -hmm. and at that point, actually, I was there to meet a friend who he actually became instrumental because he was the engineer on a lot of records that Mike Chapman worked on. And he was the first person to tell me about Mike Chapman. So anyway, um, I was waiting to meet him. We were going to go out to dinner or something. And I'm sitting in the lounge. And um, I mean, you have to imagine you're sitting in this lounge for some of the greatest records were ever made and people walking through the room and you're just sitting there trying to be cool, like, holy shit, that's Robert Plant, or holy shit, that's, um, you know, that's Bruce Springsteen or whatever, and just trying to be cool. But anyway, I already knew the band members because of, you know, the management situation, and Anton was already, had already played on, uh, it was Kiss Unmasked, he had started right. playing drums. He actually started with Ace Freely, and he played on a solo record, which led to him playing on a Kiss record. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that association too. So Gene walked out, Gene Simmons, and he was getting a drink and he looked over at me and said, um, Hey, you play keyboards, right? And I said, yes. He said, well, do you want to come inside and play on a track? We have a song that needs keyboards. So I was like, okay. I said, well, you, you mean like right now? And he opens the door. He goes, yes, right now, like march in. <laughs> so I go in there and I knew the producer also because of Vinnie Poncia because he was dating a girl that was at a coin management, you know, this was all very sort of, we all very could, incestuous and incestuous. Exactly. Like you have no idea how incestuous, <laughs> but um, anyway, so <laughs> we'll I, have to read your book. Maybe it'll be in there. Right. Well, we'll see how much I want to tell, but um, so they played me the song once and I started getting sounds and, and, and then, so then he said, okay, let's roll the tape or like, I'll play along with it. You know, so you can hear how the song goes and, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm playing and, and I'm learning the song. So I'm kind of, you know, rock and roll people don't use charts, you know, so I'm by ear, I'm picking it up. We get to the end of it and I thought, okay, I think I know the song now. Now I can really do it. And they got really quiet and they got in this corner and I'm in the control room looking through the glass at, you know, Paul Stanley and Gene and Vinny are having this discussion and shaking their heads and I'm thinking they didn't like me, you know. And then I look around the room too. There's like no women anywhere. There's no women in the building. Oh, I think the receptionist was a woman, but you know, 
I'm looking around thinking, I, I just sort of made an observation of it, but, but it was like a fleeting thought. It wasn't like, oh, I feel weird. I felt like totally comfortable. And um, then they wait for me to come into the control room. So I went in and Jean said, look, um, what are you doing the rest of the day? And I said, well, I was going to go out to dinner, but um, I can cancel it. He said, good, because we love what you played. And in fact, we love the sound of keyboards. We've never used keyboards on our record before. And we've decided that we're going to do this record a little different. And we want you to play on the whole thing. So can you come that's back? That's huge. Tomorrow? Okay, that's a huge moment, right? Yeah, I'm like 19 years old. I mean, I had never even recorded. I'd, besides doing a demo, I'd never played on a record before. And But then they told me, like, listen, you, you do understand you're not going to get credit. We'll pay you, but we can't give you credit. And um, I wasn't shocked because Anton had, it was the same deal with him. He had to ghost play because, you know, Kiss had this image of the fabulous four and, you know, <laughs> um, they were having problems with, with the drummer, Peter. So they, he had already agreed to, and I said, okay, um, you know, I'll do it. And I got paid like more money than I could have imagined at the time. I think it was like, I don't know, like $2,500 or something. Mm -hmm. It was like a massive amount of money for me. And I kept thinking too, this is funny. I just remembered this the other day. I couldn't wait to go back to Anton and the band and tell him, guess what I did today? <laughs> you know, it's like, I played on the Kiss record and they want me to come back tomorrow. You know, and um, it, I, you know, I wasn't even a fan. I didn't know anything really about them. And the, it, musically, it wasn't like I've ever really been impressed with Kiss. Mm-hmm. Um, musically, but I mean, as far as what they created, as far as the show and everything, they were huge and they were, you know, notorious. And so the, just the fact that I got to cross over and play on what I thought was a real record. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, between that and soon after that, I, we got signed, the spider got signed to a record deal. I actually felt like right now I'm actually, I've gone from doing it as a hobby to making money at it. So now I'm a professional. Now I get to play baseball with the big leagues. You know, that's really how I felt. Um, and, 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 you know, it's one thing to sit in your room and be a musician in whether they call it a bedroom musician. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, because I know so many talented people that just never make it out of their bedroom. It's, it's horrifying. And people that make it that don't deserve to, you know, Mm -hmm. But when you do cross over that and you're that, and then that's happening to you, the person, it's a phenomenal feeling, you know, uh, when you start getting paid for what you do and being acknowledged as professional, you know, especially, and again, not to put too fine a point on it, but I think being a woman at that period, especially in a session with kiss, you had a certain reputation, you, you're going up against, you know, a deeper, a higher wave than other people who might have been in that room. And so you're having to hold your ground, I'm, I'm sure becomes um, a little harder, yet you're doing it. You're, you're not overthinking, you're just going in and doing your job. And ultimately, you'll work with Kiss later after that, right? Or at least with Paul Stanley. I mean, it's a relationship yeah, that continues. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's funny, Gene, Gene put out a, a record called The Vault about a year ago. I don't know. Yeah. He, yeah. And basically what he did was he took every... Every demo, every... Every right. demo, every piece of shit that he ever... You know, <laughs> <laughs> I love Gene, you know, he's like, he's a good businessman and a good marketer. And um, it's just like, I mean, I would never do that. I, would, I, would, I have songs I wish I could burn that people would never hear again, but he just put out the stuff. It turned out that one of the songs is a song that 
Um, he hired me and some other band members. He hired Anton and I think Keith to play on this demo that he did. He called us somewhat up one night and said, will you guys come down and play some demos of songs I've written? So that was happening around that time too, you know? But, you know, I, I had an interesting thought here. There's something very cool about what they were doing. I mean, here they are, these total chauvinists that are known for like, you know, they go around bragging that they've screwed like 2,000 women and it's the whole disgusting thing. And, you know, really sort of objectifying women. And here they are. They didn't even blink that there was a, a girl. They asked a girl to come in and play. They just thought she's great and that's all we care about. I mean, it sort of goes against everything I thought about them, you know. Um, and Gene has always been that way. He's always been very respectful and supportive. And he, he's been like that with bands too. I mean, he signed. Oh yeah. Signed Van Halen. Van Halen. And, I mean, he is a good guy. He's one. Well, of they the also guys. the bands they would take it on the road to open early on. Whether you're talking Rush or ACDC, they always provided a lot of opportunities for bands to you know to be on the bill with them. Um, yeah, but, no, but it, they were they were good in that. I mean, it was mostly Gene. I mean, Gene was like you know just very cool that way. Holly, once you, once you um, get used to having some really big hit records, when you're still writing at that point, are you consciously always trying to write something big and commercial or do you not overthink that and just write as good a song as you can? How much did the commercial success do you think affect your writing in the 80s? Well, I got to tell you that that's the kiss of death. Um, mm -hmm. You're talking about kiss again. Um, <laughs> no, I... I think the minute I, I did that a few times when I had like, you know, I had publishing deals with EMI and I had to deliver X amount of tunes and, you know, always trying to top myself. I think those were probably when I wrote my worst stuff. So hmm. when I just relaxed and didn't give a shit and really just said, you know, just the reason that I made it was because I thought outside the box and I wrote unusual titles and I wrote unusual music and I guess they were different enough that they became popular. And, you know, by the way, pop has become such a dirty, dirty adjective. It's like, oh, it's so poppy, you know. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that the word pop is derived from popular. Right. And what makes something popular, the most popular is something that's unique, different, and catchy. So I, you know, that's one of the things I teach in my, in my um, when I've done master classes is to just really keep it real and don't worry about whether so-and-so is going to like it or not, because, you know, it's just, it's not a good way to come at it. It's not honest, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, you had a way, I think, too, of, of writing against the zeitgeist of the 80s. I think when you listen to a lot of your stuff from that period, it really does fit the time. Um, it's, there's something about it that just becomes very soundtracky across the entire decade about understanding what was happening in the country at that point. And, and thematically, I think you had a really good sense of just what people were into, what they were looking for, what they were dreaming about, what they were hoping for. And I think that always struck me about your writing was that you were really kind of soundtracking, almost captioning what was going on around, you know, the country and the world at that point. I think that's why it probably holds up the way it does today is it was accurate, you know, and it was, it was um, authentic to what was happening. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up with a very sort of dysfunctional, dramatic upbringing. And mm -hmm. so that kind of formed me to uh, be sort of very, I guess, dr dramatic and sometimes dysfunctional in my lyrics. <laughs> yeah. And I think people, you know, they just sort of related to that. And, um, 
you know, I, I'm, I know this is a weird analogy, but like if I see a rack of clothing and dresses, I always go for the simplest one, the most elegant one, um, thinking that that's going to also be the most uh, inexpensive one. And it's always the most expensive one. Hmm. And I sort of think of that with songs in as much as sometimes the simpler the music is and the most, and, and the words, every word, words are so important. And I, you know, I can't stand it when I hear a song and the words are embarrassing, especially when it's a guy, it's so unsexy, you know, mm. because I kind of feel like the brain is, you know, the brain is actually the most potent sexual organ that we have in our bodies. It's not the other parts, you know, and that means that you have to write stuff that stimulates people, I mean, not so much sexually, but just, yeah, that too. I mean, it is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But to keep it simple and yet be dramatic at the same time. I mean, you know, it's one thing to write something very esoteric that is really cool, but, you know, isn't that sort of catchy? And it's another thing to write something very commercial, but doesn't have any meat to it or any substance. The hard thing is to sort of meet in the middle Mm -hmm. and do both. You know, and that's what makes hits, you know, or to say something in a different way that taps into the collective psyche of what's going on in the world at any given time, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky because I was just like, I didn't think about it. I wasn't a feminist. I just wrote about things. Actually, I did an interview once and early in my career and this guy said to me, you know, your songs are, why are they all about fighting? Tell us about that. And I, but well, no, I've written a lot of stuff. What are you talking about? And then I went and looked at some of these lyrics uh, or titles like The Warrior, Invincible, Love is a Battlefield. Right. <laughs> <laughs> mm, you know, this a theme there, emerges. He's fucking right. Oh, my God. Why did I never see that? Because it wasn't deliberate. It just is. That's what oozed out of me because that's what I knew. Um, and if when I write my memoir, if you if if the people listening want to read the book, they'll find out about me and where that comes from. But um, I realized I did a lot of soul searching and I realized that it wasn't so much about fighting with people. It was about fighting for something. And I think that tapped into a lot of, you know, people at Benatar because all of a sudden women were standing up and saying, you know what? Fuck you and the horse you run, ran in on, uh, rode in on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very timely and it was very empowering and, and, and people gravitate. I mean, when you saw Benatar, this little, little woman, and she's wearing this sort of black spandex and she did that song, you better run. She meant it. I mean, she was compelling in that video. And when I saw that, I was like, I want to write, I want, oh God, if I could ever write for her, it would be amazing. You know? Is there any, when you mentioned that, if you could write for her, you did write for her, obviously very effectively. Who who today, if you had a short list of someone that you, you have not written for, are there a couple of people that if you had your druthers like tomorrow that you would, you would be collaborating with, or at least having them do your songs? Oh, absolutely. Um, It's just hard to get through the, uh, the posse, if you will, or the yeah. Gatekeepers. But who would be like? Who, what's your dream list today? Well, okay. Well, definitely Adele. Mm-hmm. I mean, Adele. I, I, you know, I think that that, that would be such a great match. Uh, you know, not only because I respect her as a singer and an artist, but she's been through a lot. She's been through a divorce. She's a mother. Yeah. I'm a mother. She's got a wicked sense of humor. I just I haven't been able to sort of get near her, which is frustrating because she lives in L.A. But she's definitely one. I felt that way. Of course, she's not around anymore, but I definitely felt that way about Amy Winehouse. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, she, you know, she was amazing. Um, 
yeah, I'd love to work with Halsey. I think she's, and, and, you know, there's some artists I think, yeah, I'd love to work with them, but they don't really need me. Like if you look at Billie Eilish, she's doing fine on her own, but I think she's fabulous, you know, mm-hmm. on, on so many levels. And to be that talented, you know, that young, I mean, most of them are women, but there are some men also that I think I'd be great working with. And some of them I was supposed to, and I'm still, you know, waiting to see if that happens. You know. You're still very busy You're, as a producer, as a writer. As you mentioned earlier, um, photography has become sort of a natural creative extension for you. So you're you're still expressing yourself in a lot of ways. Are, is your songwriting process similar today as that it was, or has has that changed over the years? Do you still approach things today the same way you would have in 1984? Say, um, I do, and I'll tell you why. It's very easy to walk up to your computer and 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 you know fire up Pro Tools and start programming. Mm-hmm. And, and um, then what happens is you just sort of are creating a backing track. And I think that it's really important to get to the melody and the lyrics as quickly as you can. So my process is to keep it very old school and either write on piano or acoustic guitar or bass guitar, you know, one of the three. And then um, I actually, and I like to write on all of them and they're, they all come out as different songs. You know, if I'm going to write on piano, it's going to be musically complex because I don't know how to undo that because now I've been playing for like, you know, a long, long time, decades and decades. Guitar, I like to write on because I don't play very well. So it makes me play very simple. And then I can write songs like Obsession or Mm. Better Be Good to Me, which are only two chords. (laughs) And when you have two chords, you actually have more room to be creative on top. If you have a song that's got all these changes, it's like, that's why I'm not really a, a big proponent of prog rock anymore. I mean, I was growing up and I had to make that transition. I mean, when I was growing up, my favorite bands were like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, uh-huh. you know, and yes. And now it's like, that's to me, that's a completely different genre than sitting down and writing a song. If, you know, to me, like I was more influenced by say the stones, mm-hmm. you know, um, <clears throat> And I always ask this too in my master classes. I'll say, okay, if you had to pick one of the two, the Beatles or the Stone, which one was the one that got to you the most? It's a very telling answer. Oh, absolutely. When, you know, it, it's a very, and, and, and you know you love them both. So, but you have to pick. You have to The pick. Rolling Stones, hands down. Same here. Okay, we're, <laughs> I, we're virtually high-fiving. I completely agree with you. And I mean, I love the Beatles, but I can't, you know, I can only listen to them so much. Whereas anytime I hear a Stone song come on the radio, I turn it up because the lyrics and the attitude and the essence and the simplicity of the songs is really what I've aspired to, you know? Well, listen, you've done it. Like I said, you, you, it doesn't take me to say it, but your legacy, you know, both then and now, I think the fact that you're writing your memoir, I think is going to bring these stories to life in a really meaningful way. You're obviously um, very honest about how you tell your stories. And I think that's going to be exciting for people to experience. And if people want to check it out, hollynight.com is your songwriter's website. You've got a photography website as well, right? Mm-hmm. What is that? That's Photo. Mm-hmm. Um, dot com. And there's and a lot of cool called. stuff on there. I think, I think your eye, again, it's, it's, it's big and it's dramatic. And a lot of your images from what I saw kind of match your songwriting style as well. There's a nice continuity in terms of how you go, you go far wide and deep with what you do, Holly. So I want to thank you for hanging out with me for an hour. This has been a lot of fun. It went by way too quick. We may have to do another one if you're up for that at some point. 
totally up for that. All right. I guess it's been a lot. I get that a lot. It's like, we got to do part two. Yeah. We, there's, there's, yeah, we barely scratch the surface, but that said, you're obviously a skillful storyteller looking forward to the book. My guest has been Holly Knight, legendary songwriter. I'm Chris Epting. I want to thank you for joining us in the moment here today. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.